0: is the africa climate conversations podcast i'm your host sophie mugwa i'm super excited today as we start a new series on the african drylands for a series that we have entitled Restoration of the African Drylands Series. It is a six-part series where the Africa Climate Conversations is partnering with the upcoming Global Landscape Forum GLF Africa Conference. The GLF 2021 Conference will be happening on the 2nd and 3rd of June this year. It is the first ever digital conference focused entirely on Africa's drylands and how integrative restoration practices can see them flourish once again. Now, African drylands are home to more than half a billion people who live and work in the drylands. Today, for the introduction, Lalisa Daguma, our scientist with the World Agroforestry, will tell us more about the drylands. Daguma, thanks for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Uh,
1: Lalisa Daguma, a scientist with the World Agroforestry or International Center for Research in Agroforestry. Mm -hmm. And I'm also working on the partnership for slash and burn agriculture in Africa. It's it's a global structure, but it's really looking at the forest margins and aims to really look at how do we improve what is happening at the forest margins, especially to reduce deforestation, forest degradation issues, which are Mm -hmm. big topics in terms of the mitigation agenda, the greenhouse gas emissions and the agriculture based emission sources and land use land cover changes that really affect Africa's ambition to reduce its own emissions because of course we always make this statement that okay we are not the major polluters but Mm -hmm. we still are the contributors to that discussion and we need to really take responsibility for whatever is coming from our side also. So mm-hmm. um, we also do quite a lot of work on that aspect and I'm part of the team that's really spearheading that activity. Okay. And recently we really began moving into the bigger agenda of looking at the most fragile ecosystems, which are the okay. dry lands. And that's mm. where we are doing quite a number of activities starting from the northern Tanzania, dry lands of Ethiopia, up to uh, the Gambia, which is the extreme country, which is in the west of Africa. So we're looking at how people are adapting, how people are coping with the whole mechanisms or the dynamics of changes that they are facing. It's not only about climate change. There are lots Mm -hmm. of changes happening within the communities within the landscapes. And our objective is really to ensure there is that sustainability and resilience built for uh-huh. people to cope with whatever change is happening without causing a lot of trade-offs in terms of biodiversity loss, greenhouse gas emissions, and even land degradation, which
0: in total affect their own livelihood going forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that introduction, Arisa. And um, I'm wondering when we're talking about drylands in Africa, what are we talking about? What areas basically are characterized as drylands?
1: When we talk about drylands, there are different attributes that really characterize them. And mm-hmm. the most important one is uh, water scarcity or precipitation or rainfall in a simpler term. Mm-hmm. So, dry land areas are largely areas which receive the minimal rainfall that we could expect compared to any other location that we are seeing in the continent. And that's why even the term is coined by combining dry and land. Dry means Mm. less rainfall compared to other parts. Mm -hmm. And importance of these dry lands in the whole narrative of sustainable land management, climate change in Africa is really quite big because uh, Africa in total has about uh, 13 million kilometers square of dry land area, which is arid, semi-arid mm-hmm. and what is generally called uh, dryland also. So Mm -hmm. this 13 million kilometer square is about 43% of the land area of Africa. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge land area in the continent. If you look at the whole northern part of Africa, especially Mm -hmm. from the west, the Gambia up to the eastern side, when you come to Sudan and all this upwards, it's generally classified as dry land. But this Mm -hmm. classification is really a generalized way of uh, calling it drylands because within the drylands there are also very wet areas uh, because of their specific nature which get quite a good rainfall good vegetation structure and kind of unique islands within even the drylands that Mm -hmm. we have Mm -hmm. so if you look at the overall situation in this place in the african context it is the part of the continent where so many compounding factors are at play at the same time you Mm -hmm. have the shortage of rainfall or limited rainfall or limited precipitation you have all these issues that come with the climate change effects with the climate variability effects as one of the most prevalent factors in these dry land ecosystems Mm -hmm. and land degradation is also so prevalent because very often it's really um, exposed because the vegetation cover yeah. normally quite low. So mm-hmm. all, most of these factors are really at play almost in at the same time. So the, the vegetation structure within these places is very thin because it's largely savanna and pasture land areas where mm-hmm. you don't have big trees that you can see as a huge forest cover. These dry lands are also facing one of the very significant losses of vegetation cover due to human activity, mostly due to agricultural expansion and in some cases due to uh, some parts where there are investments are also there. But other in other places, the loss of vegetation is driven by changing uh, growth factors, which could be related to drought because mm-hmm. it is so challenging to restore dry lands compared to other parts of the continent because water is the most critical element if you want to grow a seedling. So in this area, this is a factor which plays a big role. So mm-hmm. the overall combination of these sets of factors that are really suppressing either the restoration process or this, the performance of the existing vegetation. Together, we lead to lower vegetation cover in this part of the continent, especially in Africa, where we have this pre- precipitation shortage, climate change effects, factors like fire, which really burns down most of the vegetation almost every coming year and so. So the drylands of Africa also are the most important ecosystems of the continent. Because if you look at the large share of the pastoral communities in the continent are living in the dry land parts. Mm -hmm. That is where also they drive their livelihood from. So it is really a part of the ecosystem where you need to really understand about systems thinking. Systems thinking is like, you don't just go to farm because you have land and you want to farm it you have to see what effect that farming has on the soil, on the water, on mm-hmm. the people, on biodiversity, and mm-hmm. in that really complex network of issues that interdepend on one another. So mm-hmm. this is really critical in dryland ecosystems because these are very fragile ecosystems in many cases because mm-hmm. we also have dry lands which are really good in terms of how structurally stable they are, and any single change in one of the attributes can Mm. actually result in a big damage to the whole system. When Mm. I talk about system, it is just, we can literally refer to it from an ecosystem point of view. If you change something, like if suddenly there is no rainfall for the first month or the last month of the year or the rainy season, then the probability of some of the vegetation to dry increases. Mm -hmm. What does that do? Because that dryness actually accumulates as part of the fuel load for fire. So when just a sudden fire is lit by those who are hunting animals in in the savannas, or those who are going after honey harvesting in the woodlands, it will take over the whole system and then the, the collapse of the system is so close. So mm-hmm. that's why we have to be very careful when we are dealing with these dry land ecosystems in principle. Mm-hmm. And it is where we have the most fragile communities of people living as well as the most resilient people. Mm-hmm. If you take some of us to these dry land ecosystems, we may not survive, but these people have survived for a very long time decades, years and centuries, of course, Mm. because they managed to live within the limited uh, context of resources that are available. If you look at the water, if you look at the overall vegetation or access to resources, dry land is very much limited in those kinds of things. Mm. But This does not really mean that dry lands are very poor in biodiversity. In fact, they are one of Mm -hmm. the richest biodiversity hotspots in terms Mm -hmm. of what they contain. Also, Mm -hmm. if you look at some of the biggest trees, like in Africa, baobab is found in the dry land Mm -hmm. and a single baobab is like a habitat for birds. It provides food, uh, wild food for so many people, just a single baobab tree. It's mm. it's a nesting place for so many bird species, just one baobab tree. And it provides shades to so many animals, livestock that people are keeping. And it provides mm. quite a number of various ecosystem goods and services. So that's why when you go to like places which are called savannah, you see lions, you see antelopes, you see mm-hmm. all this diverse biodiversity mm-hmm. within those ecosystems. So yeah. overall, it's not to mean drylands are very poor in biodiversity. In fact, they are among the richest in biodiversity when we look at the overall diversity that they accommodate within a single unit of area.
0: Mm. And they also, in terms of their soils, how important are soils when it comes to uh, soils within these drylands?
1: I think uh, soil is really, really a very important uh, element in this. I mean, without soil everywhere, there is nothing possible. We can't survive without soil, no plant without soil and all those things, except those we are uh, currently, I mean, with technology, people are trying to grow them in laboratory and all those places. I mean, mm-hmm. soil is really the minimum fundamental element we need in any ecosystem for it to function properly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in this regard, I think in the dry lands, you know, there is a unique feature in most of the dry lands of Africa.
0: Mm-hmm. Even though they
1: get rainfall, only for few or days or few for few days or weeks what happens is when it falls it falls so heavily so it erodes very heavily the existing land or, or soil resources mm. and this is what we have observed in the gambia the rainfall is very short in terms of the time the temporal uh, weeds but mm. it is so intense and it erodes heavily because with that heavy volume of rain falling within a very short period of time, you get a massive soil movement, especially the top fertile soil. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: that's also where I really try to bring back the systems thinking into perspective. Mm -hmm. Like in the Gambia, people are keeping the cattle in the fields overnight so that the animals stay just in one side. Mm -hmm. What are these animals doing? They are putting back their urine into the soil. They are putting back their wastes into the soil. The dung, all of this goes back to the soil. What does that do? It binds together at least parts of the very fragile soil that is on top. Mm -hmm. By doing this, you are actually attracting these uh, microbial organisms like ants, like beetles who are doing their job for survival and by doing when they do that they increase the porosity of the soil Mm -hmm. because they create that pore space and when they create those pores the soil pores now air can infiltrate and water can also infiltrate into the soil so because we have that structure being maintained in some Mm -hmm. places of the gambia what we have realized is actually These people who are keeping the cattle on the farms or on the plots are doing it intentionally because they know the value of it. It actually Mm -hmm. helps the soil to absorb more moisture because of the activities of these small creatures that we often realize they are important, which are the insects, Mm -hmm. the beetles, Mm -hmm. the small microbes, and all those which are creating pores in the soil And that core actually creates a space for water to infiltrate into the soil. So this really gives a space for the heavy water that falls to infiltrate into the soil. But now the the main advantage of most of these places is they are not really like in the Gambia. It is almost flat. I mean, the difference in slope between different locations is quite minimal. So
0: Mm
1: -hmm. even though there is a lot of rain, if we create that mechanism by which water filters into the soil, we reduce significantly soil erosion mm-hmm. by just mm-hmm. doing those simple mechanisms, which people have been using for decades or yeah. so far. Mm-hmm. And it is what they practice also in Ethiopia. I mean, if you look at some of the dry parts, and even in the highland areas in Ethiopia they keep cattle on the farms. Why do they do it? One, the urine and the cow dung fertilizes the soil. Two, because of those microbial activities we also create porosity or we create pores that will help us take water into the soil rather than moving on the surface and washing the top soil. Mm. So, I mean, there are also studies which looked at the uh, grassland areas, which are the main components of these dryland ecosystems. And what is really important there is in grass, grassland ecosystems, you have more below ground biomass than above ground mm-hmm. biomass. Mm-hmm. Because that's the survival strategy of the plants, the grass species, and also specifically flora or plant varieties, mm. because if you dig a small plant in dry land, a small sapling of tree in dryland ecosystems, there are high chances of you finding more root biomass than the above ground biomass very often. Yeah. Mm. This is an adaptation strategy plants have come up with because they need to conserve more in the below ground, which is safer than the above ground. Mm. So, and, yeah. so soil is really critical and it's an important one.
0: Yeah, and I think in this day and age when we're dealing with climate change issues, soil basically includes organisms such as bacteria, fungi and insects that the soil biodiversity which are uniquely adapted to the conditions of this dry land, they actually help in terms of the, the carbon, nitrogen and water cycles and, and so hence uh, growing the resilience of these lands within this particular drylands, right?
1: Definitely. I mean, we have a team of scientists who are really doing a great job in this regard uh, mm-hmm. in eCraft. They would have given more in depth insights into the soils aspect. But yeah. from what we have been doing in the Gambia and in different parts of East Africa, like Ethiopia, I think the main thing is, as you rightly said, because these microbes are really like the catalysts for maintaining that soil fertility. They are the catalysts for creating that pore space mm. because they really facilitate that uh, space for water infiltration, including air movement in the soil, thereby creating a lot of these things we are really keen to have in the soil system. And with those creations, then, you begin to have in some places earthworms coming up. When you have an earthworm in a place, it is like the best indicator for you to say that life is really in a good state, because Mm -hmm. these are key species that we look at when we are dealing with these kinds of degraded soils and all those things. Especially if you are looking at indicators from a species point of view, these Mm -hmm. are like important ones you take note of. Beetles Mm -hmm. are as important as we think of any other animals because Mm -hmm. especially as I've mentioned before where animals drop their dunks and all those things that is where they are the next major players because Mm -hmm. they break it into smaller pieces, they take it to their holes that's where now the the, the dung becomes begins to decompose, thereby adding to the soil fertility. Also, so yeah. there are lots of these system level issues which really need to be taken into account when we are talking about soils in drylands, biodiversity in drylands, and the overall livelihood of the people in the drylands context.
0: Absolutely. I'm looking at the time and I'm wondering, oh, my goodness, there's a lot to talk about in terms of drylands at the time just seems to, you know, be speeding up so fast. But I'm wondering in terms of um, drylands are home to about two to some, you know, two billion people. And and already um, as looking at research from for shows that approximately six million kilometers of dryland. Um, bear a legacy of land degradation and climate change is likely to make this worse and is projected to make it worse by which um, it will cause grassland productivity to decline by between 49 to 90 percent in semi-arid and arid areas it's very critical to restore these uh, drylands but how best can they be restored we talked about the system thinking apart from the system thinking what else do we need to do? I think that
1: that's very good. I I mean, that's a very important point we all need to deal with. And Mm -hmm. it's a very timely issue. And the first and the most important thing is really to rethink our approach. Mm -hmm. When I say rethink our approach, it is about how we look at restoration within the dry lands. Because this ecosystem, as I said before, is not just like, a very convenient place where you can do things quickly and it can begin to show progress yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. restoring dry lands is really not a walk in the park it needs Mm -hmm. a very strong commitment it needs a very strong skill sets it needs understanding the socio-cultural complexity or diversity we have in those locations it is it's really a mix of so many things but mm. let's break it down yeah yeah when i say we need to really understand the context that is to mean that okay when you think for any restoration the first entry point is okay from whose point of view are we defining the degradation because mm. you can only think about restoration where there is a degradation problem sure, yeah sure
0: sure
1: because there is some gap that you see that, or that you observe as degraded, so you want to restore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The question is, who defines what is degraded? Yeah?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is where we need to have a vision vision that is inclusive of the people's voices. Sure. You, you can see an open grassland out there and say it is degraded. Yeah, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you see it as having no trees, no perennial vegetation, but just grasses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But for those communities living in that landscape, it probably is the only grazing area where their animals go out for feeding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: Yeah.
1: Thinking about restoration requires reconciling the different views of what we need to do what we think should be done also and how we think it should be done and this is where the, very often we have some conflicting approach in our interventions to restoration and that's i think what needs to change now and if you look at our approach to the current framing of restoration things which we have been arguing for, for the last two years or three now depending on what we have learned mm-hmm. it is it needs to be localized and that is when you capture the voice of those people who live with the consequences or with the benefits of what you do in that landscape Mm -hmm. and that is how we need to begin framing restoration it it is not something that we set it up at the national level and take it down to the people to implement the voice of the people be part and parcel of the design process, the implementation process, and the monitoring process. Yeah? Mm. Mm. And why do we need this? It is because we go in from a project perspective or from a program perspective. If it takes a bit longer, mm. but at the end of the day, we leave this thing to the people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the people should own this process, and that is where we need to empower the local people where we need to realize what do they want because very often the challenge we have in most of the natural resource management interventions is that you go to communities as an expert they respect you they listen to you they say okay when they think what you are talking is making sense but Mm can't actually decide whether they have accepted it or rejected it just because they said yes during a meeting. Mm. A meeting meeting is an event. It is not a process of understanding. It's a meeting is a point of where you agree on issues, but it is not an implementation strategy on its own. Mm -hmm. So a meeting has to be accompanied by Like, for example, the way we do what we did in the Gambia, because we are implementing one large-scale ecosystem restoration project. Mm -hmm. What is happening here is we started with the communities to understand what they want to happen in their landscape, because they are the ones to live with it after we leave after the project finishes. Within that setting, what we've tried to capture is what do they want? And mm-hmm. then we brought in what can be technically doable from the expert point of view, because we understand the climate future projections, we understand the state of the soils and all those things. So that social and technical and local ecological knowledge merging or combination is what needs to de- define our framing of the restoration target. Yeah. And that is when the vision is understood by the people by the experts and also by the policymakers, because at the end of the day, policymakers are looking for something that can be implemented. It is not they are after something that stays on the shelf, very nicely designed and beautifully bound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the vision has to be created in a participatory manner. Yeah. The second thing is our approach to interventions also needs to change because for the last two years, I was leading this initiative about moving away from tree planting and embracing the tree growing agenda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you, What was happening before is like you get a project, mm-hmm. you go and plant ceilings and you leave it because there is no proper accountability built into it. And yeah. we want to make sure that our efforts in restoration in these dry land ecosystems where so many constraint factors are at play we need to begin to move to tree growing which needs a commitment of not just one or two years but five six seven so that we see the seedlings we planted can become trees that provide the benefit the communities need Mm -hmm. that narrative has to be built into the whole discussion about restoration. If we are looking at the issues of tree-based restoration, Mm -hmm. but there are not only one options. Planting is just one, yeah? There Mm -hmm. is a farmer-managed natural regeneration. There is assisted natural regeneration where you take care of the suppressing factors that affect the growth of important species within those landscapes. And there are different ways of doing it. we should not be bound by just looking at the aspect of, we should always plant seedlings. By the way, we don't plant trees, we plant seedlings. Very mm-hmm. often people say tree planting, tree planting. How on earth can we plant a tree? It is not yeah. a tree that we plant, <laughs> exactly. but yeah. we plant a seedling, we plant mm-hmm. a seedling, take mm-hmm. care of it, and then it grows to become a tree. Mm-hmm. Logically, that's how our mindset should be framed. And we should not just think about the cost of a ceiling when we are thinking about restoration.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: for a ceiling to become a tree, the cost is so many. Yeah, The cost lines are so many mm-hmm. and it happens every year. So very often people say eh, we need about $200 per hectare.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I always try to challenge those kinds of narratives because there is, there is no way we can do a restoration on a plot
0: yeah.
1: at a cost that is only looking at the ceiling cost. yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there is a land management cost. Next year, there is a need for replacing some of those ceilings that die because of water scarcity or so many other factors like fire, insect damage and all those things and that's how we need to look at it and the most Mm -hmm. important thing is if we have to really succeed in this restoration agenda in this u.n decade of restoration Mm -hmm. we need to work on accountability frameworks nobody should be allowed to take 100 ceilings and remain silent without tracing what has happened to those ceilings. People have to begin Mm. to account. Instead Mm. have to begin to account those ceilings they took. There has to be a justification if they are not in the right place where they are intended to be.
0: Mm. At
1: least that really helps us to be more effective and also efficient because we, we have short time, we have limited resources. So we need to look at options, to maximize effectiveness at the same time efficiency. Mm. And that accountability framework is really fundamental. And that should be part of every single intervention that goes into this restoration discussion. Mm. And that's Mm. really what we have been pushing for the last two years in this whole narrative behind the big movement around restoration. And Mm -hmm. the third is really looking at what works and how can it be scaled
0: mm, yeah. to
1: larger area? Because very often if you look at the restoration in dry land, this is the first thing that you see in most of the reports is the Niger success story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah?
1: Mm-hmm. You probably might have come across that. Yeah. So I have, what yeah. is yes? That intervention was part of the local people's effort to to survive in their landscapes. The guy who began that process began it as part of surviving within that landscape. So Mm. we need to begin to look at local solutions that are more efficient, easily adoptable by wider communities, and those that could adapt to the future climatic conditions also. Because Mm -hmm. what we are facing now is we are not just planning based on the current climate. We are planning based also taking into account the future possible climate scenario. So these all things need to be part of the framework. And lastly, what I really would like to say is we should just be focusing on planting the right trees at the right place for the right (laughs) purpose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what we promote in eCraft. The right trees have to be there. When we say the right trees, it is about saying, okay, this tree can actually survive here. It will have minimal trade-offs in terms of environmental impacts. It benefits a lot of people. It fits to the local geographic biodiversity contexts. And the, for the right purpose, it's really the same thing I mentioned before. Mm. And last but not least, restoration is not something that we have to do in a project format. It is about really in the dryland ecosystem, it is about survival. Because <laughs> without the ecosystems, our options to cope with the climate change effects is very minimal. Mm. Ecosystems have to be taken care of. That's our best bet to actually keep these communities, the millions and billions of people living in these dry land ecosystems, to survive in the changing situations of the climate that we are seeing, and that mm-hmm. are also to come in the future, because the impact is not yet over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, there are good commitments to reduce the emissions part, but the commitment in the emissions part has to be translated into practices Practice. that could actually begin change mm-hmm. in the local realities. That's why we argue restoration is not about the the, the national level processes. It's about the local issue. For mm-hmm. people, it is about their survival because they depend on that ecosystem. And yeah. if it is degraded, they have to begin to restore it because that is their future. That's mm-hmm. their
0: hope. Mm-hmm. Lalisa, can you quickly m- mention about COVID-19? If and how it has actually affected restoration? Yes,
1: I think when we we wrote a paper uh, just few months ago uh, mm-hmm. about COVID-19 and uh, pandemic, and also the agroecosystems resilience. How do they relate, and how do we see it? At least from an early insight point of view, yeah, yeah. to just yeah. give people perspectives on what we think the impact would be and what the literature also says. Yeah. Okay, what COVID-19 came with as a consequence on the natural resources is that it relates mostly to the financial resources and yeah. the movement of people. If you mm-hmm. simply look at some of our ecosystems, which are too fragile, like the dry land uh, ecosystems, which are luckily the best places where tourists prefer to go resources Mm -hmm. have gone down because nobody is coming because of the movement restriction and the resources to support those ecosystems have actually gone down there is no Mm -hmm. doubt in kenya we've heard a lot about this story in some of the conservancies and in some of these places the income source has declined what does that mean when income source declines people I mean, the institutions tend to reduce some workers, which very often are the rangers and all these people who are manning the protected areas or the ecosystems. That reduction in human workforce actually leads to more fragile borders or protection for those intruding into those areas Mm -hmm. than the resources exposed to exploitation. Mm. What does that do? It damages the biodiversity, the wild animals, the fragile species. Fragile species in this sense is like those which are really emerging from the soil, like the seedlings, saplings, because people are doing what they think could benefit them. Mm -hmm. And this damages the whole vegetation structure. And the consequences of such issues will not stop like two years, three years, because if this damage is significant the vegetation structure will be altered with time and this could even result in changing biodiversity going forward because mm-hmm. there are some species of animals which are typically dependent on some species of plants absolutely mm-hmm. so that's one dimension the other dimension is the overall reduction in, in investments i mean funding for natural resources i think there are emerging impacts nowadays especially in some parts of dry lands of Africa where some projects are suddenly cancelled because donors also face limitation in terms of resources and with uh, some news that are coming in pastoral areas even in the last few weeks where some projects are pulled off because the donors do not have enough resources and there is a diversion of resources to the health management rather than the environmental management which we Mm -hmm. really need for the sustainability of the ecosystem and the society living in that ecosystem so (laughs) there is also a significant effect on research and scientific skills development that's Mm -hmm. already reported in quite a number of uh, uh, pieces in the research space what is it doing because of the movement restrictions you can't travel to all those places you do research and new knowledge coming from research and with this you have limited information to know about how things are in the future and the future is dependent on the knowledge we have about the current. So Mm. that really shapes what actions we should be taking. For example, if you are to do species conservation in a given landscape, you need to understand where the species prefers, what the most stressing factors are and all those the only way to know this is through research and if research is affected because of the movement restrictions then you have uh, an effect on that uh, particular species in in specific terms so Mm -hmm. restoration is affected in so many ways from this angle and uh, i think going forward there will be quite a number of materials that will come out from the research space particularly informing this dimension of impact that we did not anticipate to see for a long time but it just happened and we are to experience it but we have to think about how can we tackle those complexities that emerge with these kinds of covid related impacts from resource and location points of view and even the management of the, the, these different ecosystems, because yeah. we, ne- we need to learn from what has happened and begin to find strategies of, in these kinds of scenarios, what should we be doing? How do we mm-hmm. safeguard these protected spaces or areas and mm-hmm. highly fragile ecosystems? How could we manage them if we are to face such a kind of scenario in the future again?
0: Mm-hmm. And that means the upcoming GLF, the Global answering Forum that will be ha- happening on the 2nd and then uh, the 3rd of June is very very critical, right?
1: Definitely, I mean this is really where exchange of on the ground experiences is, is to happen, to mm-hmm. inform, really shaping what should we be doing going forward because um, for me, I'm, okay, I respect thoughts and uh, reflections, but I always try to link them with on-the-ground experiences so that absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: there is that connection between the local realities and the local, local contexts and mm-hmm. what opinions and viewpoints also highlight.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Lalisa, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we have to end this conversation uh, at this particular point, but I sincerely appreciate you taking your time and to explain to us in depth in terms of these issues when it comes to african and i sincerely appreciate it. thank you so much thanks so much and next week we will talk about the africa forest landscape restoration initiative afr 100 a country-led effort to bring 100 million hectares of land in africa into restoration by 2030. please remember to subscribe not to miss any of the episode by clicking on the subscribe button on our website www.africaclimateconversations.com you can also listen to us on spotify google apple and every other channel you access your other podcasts. please write to us using info at africaconversations.com or hit us up on twitter facebook or instagram the restoration of the african dryland series is a six-part series on the upcoming global landscape forum Africa Conference led by the Center for the International Forestry Research, CIFO, and the World Agroforestry Center, ICRAF, in collaboration with its co-founders UNEP, the World Bank, and Charter members. The GLF Africa 2021 Conference will be happening online on the 2nd and 3rd of June this year. In case you want to register and you haven't done so, please find a link on our website until this week on thursday for the final part of the financing change in africa series koheri my name is sophie Mbokwa.